Okay, you can uh, be seated. Let the children be dismissed for junior church. And as we transition, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 36 this morning. John chapter 3. Gospel of John chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 22. It says, After this Jesus and His disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where He spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Aeon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put into prison. That parenthetical note, by the way, indicates for you that this is the only time period when John the Baptist and Jesus were ministering simultaneously. Okay, so this, this passage that we're going to look at today is from a time in the life of John the Baptist when his ministry and the ministry of Jesus were occurring at the same time most historians believe about two miles separated from each other on the River Jordan at their appropriate geographic location. So the, the tension of this passage revolves around the fact that Jesus is ministering and John the Baptist is still ministering. All right, and that is going to cause a bit of a conflict, if you will. Verse 25, it says, An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the manner of ceremonial washing. So there's this debate that then leads John's disciples into his presence. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. If you were to turn to the end of the Gospel of John to chapter 20 and verse 31, you would find this statement. The Word of God says, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This record in the Gospel of John is given so that you might believe that hope is found in Jesus only. That's the purpose for the Gospel of John. Its purpose is to witness to the uniqueness of Christ as the only hope for sinners. Now, as you begin to read the Gospel of John, you find that the first witness to the saving work of Christ as the Lamb of God is born by what individual? Okay, we've been studying that. Alright, by John the Baptist. 
And you'll find over and over through the Gospel of John this theme of witness to the glory of Christ so that people will know that He is in fact the Son of God and that eternal life comes through Him only. John is the first witness to that. John is, in the words of Christ, prior to His death, the premier witness to His work. So great is John's work as a witness to the glory of Christ in His saving work that John can say of John, of all those born of women, none is greater than John. And so we find John as this preeminent, significant witness to the glory and majesty and crosswork of the Savior. Climaxes in John chapter 1 and verse 29 when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is the first, in a sense, premier witness to the glory and majesty of the saving work of Jesus Christ. As John's ministry winds down, he ends up functioning in a, in a contemporaneous manner with Christ. Jesus is baptizing and John is baptizing. As they are ministering, there is a diminishing in the following of John the Baptist. You get back to the book of Matthew and what do you find? Many crowds there are coming to him. They are flocking to him. But when you come to John chapter 3, the disciples of John recognize that there is a bit of a problem. At least for them, it's a problem. It comes up in verses 24 through 26. They come to him and say, the man that you pointed to on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, and I love the way the NIV puts this, that one, well, he is baptizing and more people are going to him than are coming to you. They're anticipating that what is a problem for them will be a problem for who? For John the Baptist. Okay? They're looking at how they would feel about a loss of popularity and interpreting through their own eyes that John must really, if John knew about this, he would address this problem. Okay? That's, that's in a sense the setting in which this story emerges. John is experiencing a loss of popularity. His disciples assume that for John, that's going to be a big problem, and John's going to go address that problem. The question I have for you this morning is this. How is it that John sustains his position as the premier witness to Christ in the face of fading popularity? How is it that John continues to be a faithful witness to Christ? Why was he able to resist the pull of Envy that his followers were beginning to experience. How does he resist the desire to stay great while proclaiming the greatness of another? How does he resist that tendency? And I want to, in this passage to identify three reasons why John is able to resist the pull to be great when there was someone in his presence who deserved the ultimate honor and glory, that being the person of Jesus Christ. Three reasons why John was able to resist the pull of envy and covetousness in his life that had captivated his followers. The first thought comes up in verse 27. They come, they expose the problem. Well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Your crowd is diminishing, John. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. And for John, that's just baseline. A man can only receive what is given to him 
from heaven. If he has popularity and success, if he has diminishing popularity and an apparent lack of success, whatever he has is under the sovereign control of God. And I'll suggest to you this morning that the first reason that John was able to resist the pull of envy is because his purpose was clear. What was John's purpose? To fulfill the calling of God upon his life, which was to be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare, make straight the way for the Lord. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, in the words of Malachi, John's ministry is forecast. John is clear about his God-given purpose, which was to fulfill God's calling to exalt and magnify the Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 28, he says, after he gives this announcement that a man can only receive what is given to him by God, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. Did John expect that in the end he would die with a great following? Did he expect that he would die with huge popularity? and apparent success from a human perspective? The answer is clearly, in the words of John the Baptist, no. What is John saying? John's saying my life wasn't to be about me. It wasn't about people knowing me, about me having a great ministry. My job was singular. Notice how he can say it. You can testify that I said, I am not the Christ. But instead, I am the one who was sent ahead of him. I am the one who prepares his way. And if you wanted to understand what that idea of the one sent ahead of him means, you would go back into the ancient world and understand that if a king or an emperor was coming to a certain portion of his kingdom, he would have a team that would go ahead of him, a preparation team. Their job was to make everything look good and appropriate for when he got there. The people who went to prepare the way, who cleared the road to get ready for the king, were not the main events. They were simply the preparation team, the advance team for the main event. When John looks at his ministry, he says to his disciples, I told you that I am not the one. The one coming after me is greater, deserves greater honor and glory. John understands his God-given role, his God-given purpose was to prepare the way so that when Jesus Christ came on the scene, people would be aware of their sin and know that they need a Savior. And when John points to Jesus, what will they do? They'll leave John's sight and to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. John will later say, this brings me great joy. So his disciples think that he's going to be in some way affected by covetousness. But John realizes that his call is God-given, and he accepts it with absolute contentment. Folks, here's an interesting thing. John stood at a very unique position, didn't he, between the Old and New Testaments. He stood at the end of the Old Testament era that anticipated the coming of the Messiah, and he was the one who stood right at the crossroads and pointed into the next generation. John can see his ministry listed in Isaiah chapter 40. John can see his ministry listed in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. You know what John says? That's my God-given purpose. And he embraces his God-given purpose knowing that it is God's will, it is God's calling on his life. And when he experiences decreasing popularity, John is okay with that. Why? Because his joy is coming for fulfilling his God-given call and purpose in his life. This morning, folks, I think we can ask ourselves this question. Am I content 
with God's sovereign calling and plan for my life? And do I make it my purpose as a Christian to fulfill the purpose for which God saved me? That purpose being to glorify Him and to bring others to Him by proclaiming the good news of Christ. John the Baptist lived his life to make Jesus Christ known in his world. It's one of the reasons John could avoid this tug of envy or covetousness. Second thought emerges when you begin to read in verse 29. And it's an interesting transition out of this forerunner role to an analogy about weddings. Uh, In the text, most of your Bibles are going to say uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. I want you to focus your attention on the word friend if you have New International Version. Um, A good translation of this would be the ancient best man. Okay? The guy who was selected by the bridegroom to prepare the wedding and to make sure everything went off with perfection. A little bit different than how our best man functions today. Right? Today it's, it's pretty ceremonial. A uh, little bit of a function in terms of sharing the ring. But in the ancient world, the best man had as his function to be sure that the bridegroom and the bride come together and enjoy a new life together. His job is to get the whole celebration together. Now, one of my favorite things at weddings, I was at one... Uh, the Saturday before Christmas Sunday, or before Christmas, that Saturday, I was at a wedding. One of the things I love to do when the bride and groom are coming in to a wedding ceremony, I love to watch the people that are up front. I enjoy seeing the bride and all that stuff come in. That's all wonderful also. But I like watching the response of the friends to seeing their friends join together in marriage. And I'll tell you something that really bothers you. Something that really bothers you is being at a wedding and seeing people in the bridal party who kind of grandstand, who kind of make it about them, and you're thinking to yourself, there's something seriously wrong with this picture. John looked at himself, knowing that in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 55, God speaks about Israel as his what? As his bride. Jesus in the New Testament talks about the church as what? Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. He talks about the church as his bride. You know what John the Baptist sees his role as? Seeing God and his people join together in a way that will change their lives forever. John was the best man when Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is introduced to his bride, the church. And for John, that, as it does for a best man at a wedding ceremony, for John, that brought him an incredible amount of joy. The second reason I believe John was able to resist the pull of envy when his popularity was diminishing was because his joy was complete. He found his joy in exalting Jesus Christ. He was not bothered by the lack of popularity. In fact, the, the observation on the part of his disciples that everybody's going after Jesus. For John, John looked at that and said, that's a success. That's a success. 
my calling was to bring people to Christ. People are going to Christ, his disciples say. John's like, great. That's exactly why I came. He found his greatest joy in making Jesus Christ known. The attendant's task was to organize the wedding, to protect and to bring together the bride and groom. And in bringing them together, the bridegroom finds great joy. When he hears in this text that the bridegroom is coming, John says, I have great joy because I know that this wedding event is about to take place. And John could say, this brings me great joy. Notice what it says, beginning of verse 29. The friend who attends the bridegroom, the best man, who attends the groom, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Why? Because he knows that the moment of union, of joining together, is about to come. And he is so happy for his friend, he counts it a privilege to be selected to serve as a best man. How many of you have ever served as best men in weddings? How many of you have had that, that privilege, okay? When that person asked you to serve in that capacity, what did you think? I deserve this. No? You know what? I, 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 was, I had the privilege of being the best man for my two brothers. For me, that was, that was an honor. I felt honored to be part of seeing them come together. And when a bride and groom are united in a public setting in, 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 in our culture, Guess what happens to the bridal party? When they see the bride and groom who are friends of theirs joined together, what do they experience? It worked. No? Here you see. You see this sense of joy and elation and celebration. And when they're introduced to the crowd for the first time, there's this applause. And when everybody leaves, what's on their face? Just this irrepressible smile. You think about this. John's disciples come right into him. That man you talked about? He's got more followers than you. John looks at them and says, that brings me such joy. Folks, do you see how we get life flipped around? We make life about us, and we settle for a lesser joy in life. There is no greater joy in life than making the Savior known. John the Baptist found his greatest joy in taking the good news of Jesus Christ proclaiming to, to others and watching their allegiance shift from a relationship with Him to a life-changing, eternally blessed relationship with the Savior. Folks, why didn't John fall to envy and covetousness? Because he found great joy in seeing people go to Christ. And it will change your life dramatically if you begin to understand that the purpose of our lives as Christians is to see others come into a joyful and satisfying relationship with the Savior. John can say in verse 29, that joy is mine and it is now complete. They're coming, sharing the bad news. John looks at it and says, I am so encouraged. My God-given purpose has been fulfilled because people are flocking to Him. John saw folks exposing Jesus to a lost world as the greatest privilege in life. John did not look at his ministry as the greatest privilege in life. He looked at others fleeing to Jesus as the greatest privilege in life. It is, it is in a sense, that heart that prompted Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries that was killed by the Akua Indians. It, was, it is that thought 
of taking Jesus to a, a, a world that does not know him that caused him to say this. He said, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. You know, what is Jim Elliot saying? There is no greater joy in life than knowing Jesus Christ personally. John knew him. He could say he's greater than me. He says, I don't even deserve to tie his sandals or to carry his shoes. And it brings me great joy to see people begin to follow him. John says, that's why I came. So the people would come to know him as Lord and Savior. Folks, one of the greatest privileges in life is seeing people come into a soul-satisfying relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. So, John resisted covetousness because he had a clear purpose. Fulfill the calling of God in your life. Secondly, he avoided covetousness because he found joy in seeing people follow the Savior, Jesus Christ. Third thought comes up in verse 30. And this is perhaps one of the best-known verses apart from John 3.16 in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Here's what it says. He must become greater. I must become less. How many of you have ever seen that on a t-shirt? Bumper sticker? How well does that message sell in your personal world? He must become greater. I must become less. That's a message that is very contrary to the world that I live in. One of the reasons that John was freed to live a life of exalting the Savior was because of this. His passion in life was singular. It was focused. What was that passion? The joyful exaltation of Jesus Christ. Not as duty. Not as, oh, I, today I have to proclaim Jesus Christ. No, today I must proclaim Christ. Why? Because John knew the saving effect of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. John knew that Jesus Christ must become bigger and that John's popularity, on the contrary, must fade away. Jesus is to be preeminent. The concern is found in verse 26 when they say, the one that you pointed out, he is baptizing more than you. In the mind of John's disciples, what did that mean? It meant a decreasing in influence. A decreasing in influence in their mind meant what? A decrease in stature, in prominence. For John's disciples, they're thinking, I don't want to go. I don't want that. I don't want my prominence to diminish. I want people to like me more. I want people to appreciate me more. John looks at his disciples and says, my joy is complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Fascinating word comes before the word increase and decrease in the Greek. Three-letter word, D-E-I. It's the word day. John is saying is this. It is necessary. It is the sovereign plan of God. I am going down while Jesus is going up. That is the means by which he clarifies for his disciples his passion in life. His passion in life was that Jesus Christ would be known. For John, he wants them to understand that he is not conceding victory to a better opponent. It's not what it is. John's not saying, oh, I guess, he, I guess he's beating me now. <laughs> not what's going on. 
No, John's saying, no, this, is, this was necessary. This is not a defeat. This is not a surrender. It is the fulfillment of his God-given calling and purpose. It was for John a logical necessity or mandate that Jesus Christ must, determined by the will of God, become greater in the eyes of people and that we must become lesser. Folks, can I tell you this? There is freedom from self-centeredness when the passion of your life is to exalt the Savior Jesus Christ. There is freedom. When life is about exalting Jesus, you will be freed from the bondage of self-centeredness. An observation I want to make here, and, and I read this in a, in, a, in a sermon on this passage of Scripture. Uh, the writer said this. He said, it is impossible for a preacher to make Jesus greater and make himself greater at the same time. It is impossible for a preacher to make Jesus greater and himself greater at the same time. And that caught my attention. It is impossible for us as Christians to have an agenda of personal promotion while at the same time exalting the Savior Jesus Christ. That's the heart of John the Baptist. I must decrease so that he can increase. And in that there is a great degree of liberating joy for your life. For John, this idea of humility, of giving glory to Christ, was not simply an affection that came and went. It was a committed purpose in his life. It was necessary that people see Jesus. And every relationship that John developed, my guess is this. John always spoke of the Savior. He must increase and I must decrease. I had an experience recently, just in my own personal life, where I was and it's still ongoing, developing a relationship with someone, and this person happens to be a mechanic. I have, uh, not someone that uh, is part of our church family, I, I saw my relationship with that person as a relationship of convenience. Meaning, they were close by, they could do things I couldn't do, a couple times when I couldn't get my lawnmower started, shoved it on the trailer, took it over, and he just immediately fixed it, got it back up and running, and I went on my way. Recently took uh, one of our cars there to get an oil change and a couple things looked at. And while the car was there, I, 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 in my office, got convicted about the fact that I had yet to think about this man's relationship with Christ. I was very excited about his ability to help me. Of how convenient and how fair price and how what I perceive so far to be trustworthy this man is. But I caught myself thinking. He's about me. He's Knowing him is a benefit that makes my life easier. It makes my life better. I'm increasing and Jesus is decreasing. Made a commitment before the Lord. That's something I need to go and address begin to share with that individual uh, the greater need in his life is not a relationship with me it's a relationship with Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord of his life folks it is easy for us to make life about us while Jesus Christ fades from the center and from the high place that he so appropriately 
deserves. The last few verses of this chapter, and I just want to read them for you, 31 through 36. Talk about why this desire to exalt Christ is so prominent in the mind of John. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. Do you see the logic? John is not bothered by getting below Jesus. Why? Because the one who comes from above, he's over everything anyhow. He is the sovereign Lord. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth. What is John saying? I'm just a normal guy. Selected by God to fulfill a unique purpose, but in the end, I am of the earth. I am normal. I am not from above. He is. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And John is bothered by the incongruity of that. People need to be going after Christ. They need to know the Savior. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God and gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. What is John saying? Jesus has this superior rank. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is God in flesh. You can go back to John chapter 1 and read the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. One fourteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt in our midst. This glorious revelation of God. What is John saying? John's saying the most important message that you and I have to carry to the world around us is the glory and excellency of the Savior, Jesus Christ. He then drifts out of this thought into verse 35. The Father loves the Son, has placed all things in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, flip that around. Whoever believes in John the Baptist has what? I don't have eternal life. John did not have the capacity to alter people's destiny. So when the crowd came to John, my guess is this. The crowd following John made John a little bit nervous. He must increase. I must decrease. That's John's response to a loss of popularity. If people know Christ, they can have hope. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So if people are going after Him and pursuing Him and seeking to know Him more, John's saying that's a good thing. That's, folks, the purpose of the Christian life. Far too often our lives are filled with competition. That's a theme that emerges in this text, isn't it? Competition. John, you're losing popularity. What are you going to do about it? John's response, nothing. Nothing. It is good. It brings me joy to exalt the Savior because in the Savior there is eternal life. What John is saying is this. If you trust Jesus, you get everything that you could possibly want out of life. I think John the Baptist's life could be summarized in the words of Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, Present yourself a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. It is your reasonable act of worship. You know what John is saying? 
Me going down and Christ going up is the way it should work. Folks, when you go into your day tomorrow, as you finish out the day that is before you, would you make it the glory of Christ that needs to be seen? Would you make it your passion that life is not about competition? Who has what? Who's getting what promotion that I missed? Or No, it's about people knowing Christ. That's what it's about. John could say at the end of his life, and I'm sure this gets near to the end of his physical existence before he's thrown into prison. John is told, hey, you're losing popularity. People are going to Christ. John is saying, you know what? That is exactly what life is about. Knowing Christ and making Him known to a world that is so desperately lost. Why? Because verse 36 says that if you believe in Him, you have eternal life. If you don't believe in Him, you're lost. This morning, one question I would bring to you, I would submit to you is this. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ, our desire as a church family would be to stand in the place of John the Baptist and say, you need to know him, not us. You need to cultivate a relationship with him, not with us. Salvation is not come found by coming and sitting in a pew or a chair in this church. Salvation is found by placing faith and trust and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. In your estimation, he must increase. He must become the one that you realize died on Calvary's cross to pay the price for your sin. And if you're willing to come to him saying, Lord, I repent of my sin, and I today trust in you as my Lord and Savior, he'll change your destiny. You see, as a church, we have a function, don't we? We're like John. We point to Christ. Folks, one of the greatest joys in life, and if you're missing this, I want to encourage you. Go into your day tomorrow saying, Lord, use my life. Use my life. Let me go out tomorrow with the attitude that I need to decrease, and Jesus Christ is one that needs to increase. As you go into your day, say, Lord, give me an opportunity. What, what mechanic in your life do you need to talk to? What co-worker in your life do you need to talk to? And pray to God and say, God, I can't do that on my own. I can't do that. But if you tomorrow, if you through the rest of this day would fill me with your spirit, I am willing to be an instrument in your hand. Use me like you used John the Baptist. Folks, you will find your greatest joy in exalting the Savior in the midst of your sphere of influence. He must become greater. You and I must become lesser. Let's bow our heads together in prayer this morning.